Welcome back to another episode of Bush School Uncorked. I'm here with my co-host Greg Dawes. Nice to meet you, Greg. Hi, everybody. And we have a guest who we'll get to momentarily. Actually, we'll and, go ahead and introduce and, our guest. Well, and but we should say guest. that once again um, we are being hosted yeah, by our friends yeah, at, down, there, you, at yeah. downtown Uncorked. In historic in, downtown Bryant. Historic downtown Bryant. Very My good. students have started making this joke at me in class. About historic downtown Bryant? Mm-hmm. Well, for an entire season of the podcast, you forgot it. <laughs> I and I had to remind you every single time. My capstone was reminding me today where we were. And they were like, isn't it historic downtown Bryant, Dr. Bullock? There you are. So our joke caught up. I'm, yeah. I'm pretty proud of it. All right, we have our guest today, uh, Professor Jonathan Cooper-Smith. Thanks for being back with us. It is a pleasure to be in historic downtown Bryant. <laughs> Well, and, and, and Professor Cooper Smith is in the Department of History, so it's very appropriate that we're uh, in historic, history, down, historic, historic downtown Bryan. Those words sound kind of similar to me. We must have some overlap. <laughs> yes, and that will be on the, that will be on the final. <laughs> so we took a two-week break. Um, we had recorded a couple weeks in a row. had a little bit of a break. You, was, were, you were down at the border. Yeah, so... Um, Let's give you a little update on that. Faith and I did travel down uh, to Ma- uh, to Brownsville and then over to Matamoros. I traveled over to Matamoros. Another former Faith, Faith isn't allowed to leave the country. Faith does not have a passport. You're a Bush School student and you don't have a passport, Faith. Shame on her. Mm-hmm. But she did help. You so- march right down to the to the <laughs> study abroad office at Texas A&M University and get yourself a passport. And you can get one there. Yeah. It's faster than going right. to the faster post office. Faster than going to the post office. Oh, yep. Learned something yeah. already? Yep. Oh, hold on. Another question. Go ahead. Have you ever been to the Manny Rosenthal Meet Te- Technology Center? No. Do you have any idea what I'm talking about? I do, but I have not Okay. All right. The number of my students who don't know about the Manny Rosenthal Meet Technology Center is astounding. Well, do tell. I don't think I know. Oh, you d- okay. No. If you're an omnivore or if you're a car- carnivore, you should go visit the Manny Rosenthal Fight Nagy class of 46, Meet Technology Center. We are an ag school, and... Um, it's in our name. It's in our name. It's in our, and a lot of uh, ag schools, a lot of land, land grants, you know, they have undergraduates studying ag, various forms, um, often involving cows. And a lot of places have undergraduates doing um, research or studying uh, dairy cows, so what do you do with all the surplus that they generate? You turn it into, into ice cream. Um, oh, really? Yep. So if you go to Penn State or you go to Cornell or you go to Washington State, you will find a store on campus that sells really excellent ice cream. And my wife, who grew up near uh, Cornell, said, when we moved down here, I'm going to an ag school. They'll have beautiful landscaping. They'll have ice cream. They'll sell cheese, which is what Cornell does. And she came down here and found out that we are a meat-based school, not dairy. So we sell surplus undergraduate meat, and including uh, world-class beef, beef jerky. But also, if you go to the, uh, uh, we sell a, a wide range of meat. You can get a lot of different cuts. A lot of different cuts, different different an, an, an animals. Um, they're very busy during during home football games as old eggs come yeah. back. Yeah, want the jerky? Yeah, no, not just the jerky. But it's the other other stuff too. No, you can get you can get a you can get a, 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 a 
New York Strip there. You can get a tenderloin there. You can get large you can get ribs. quantities of cow. Yeah. Uh, but they also sell, they often sell lamb. And no, no ice cream, though. No ice cream. Well, they do sell, they do have a little cooler that sells bluebell. But it's not, it's not, it's not the local. It's not the same. It's not, the yeah. same. It's not with all my due respect for Bluebell. My, my former institution, the University of Vermont, which was also the State Agricultural College of Vermont, also had a dairy bar. Mm-hmm. You could go and get ice cream. And while I was there, unfortunately, it shut down. But, but my wife, who grew up in Vermont, would wax nostalgic about her trips into Burlington to go to the, to the UVM dairy bar. And get and get the ice cream that was made on campus by the ag students. Next time you're in Madison, go to the dairy bar there. All right, this wins the award for like most random sidebar, but I really like it. Yeah, yeah. So uh, Faith and I uh, partnered up with a former Bush School student. This all started with Faith not not having a passport. Yeah, I know. Yeah, we've adequately shamed her. Yeah. Well, and passport. she didn't know that she could get her passport yeah, yeah. at yeah. <laughs> on campus. <laughs> Well, another former Bush student, Mary Lou Hare, did have her passport. She's been down to the uh, refugee encamp- encampment uh, in Matamoros, which is, as a uh, consequence of MPP, we're asylum seekers that show up at the border. What's MPP? So it's the Migrant Protocol Protection. So this is where the migrants have to apply for asylum, not in the United States, but in Mexico at the border. Yep, and okay. then they wait there for their, uh, their processing. Their processing. Um, usually their first hearing is no sooner than six months, and it usually takes multiple hearings. There's some other things coming out of Human Rights Watch uh, that, about some of the conditions and some of the misleading with those cases and what they put the asylum seekers through as part of the case process. But we went, uh, we're doing a short series, a couple episodes for the podcast on asylum seeking in the U.S., and we wanted to go down there and see firsthand what this looked like. Um, and we had the opportunity with World Central Kitchen and Team Brownsville to help serve dinners for a couple nights. Mm-hmm. Uh, World Central Kitchen was an organization I wasn't aware of, but they perform, uh, they prepare fresh, uh, healthy meals every day for a hot dinner for the refugees, the asylum seekers, seven days a week. And then Team Brownsville partners with them. And we actually carried the food across the border in carts and then delivered it in a tent that's set up there. What Were the border officials, did they facilitate that? Or were, what, what, was there any hostility? Uh, so with the border officials themselves, they have a process, and the team knows what the process is going to be. So there's certain rules of what you can and can't bring and how much of what you can and can't bring. So they let them bring all the coolers, all the food. There's no, they just kind of open it. To, they do check all the boxes right. every time you come through. But there are certain items that there are rules on that then they are sticklers about. For example, uh, bringing in tents. It's for tax purposes. Under, uh, so these are the Mexican border officials? This is the Mexican border officials. How about, how about the U.S. border officials? So the U.S. border officials on the way back into the country just check your passport. They ask you if you brought anything in from Mexico and then let you go on their way. We didn't get any hassling on the bridge, coming back, going, and from either sets of the, the Border Patrol folks. They seem to get what's going on yeah. and are in general uh, neutral to it. They're, they're not har- okay. harassing the, the World good. Central Kitchen people. That's good. Um, and so it made it easy to get over there. The, the encampment's actually guarded at parts of the day by the military. There's a fence around about three quarters of it, and then we would serve about a thousand hot meals each night. Wow, a thousand! Mm-hmm. Wow. 
And then Sunday morning, they have a school right now. It's only once a week, although they're moving towards every day. They're going to hire some full-time teachers in mid-March. But right now, the Team Brownsville people provide what they call Escuelita on Sunday mornings. They have four little tents. My estimate was between 150 to 200 children, probably closer to 150, show up. Some of their parents do some basic uh, activities with them. Yoga is one of them. It really depends on what groups are there. But they have a teacher, a professor from UT Kingsville, um, that helps run um, some basic kind of arts and crafts and using that to learn some language skills. UT Kingsville or, or A&M Kingsville? A&M Kingsville, yeah. Please, let's, let's take our credit. Let's take our credit. <laughs> let's take our credit. That's A&M Kingsville. Mm-hmm. So A&M is playing a role down there. We were down there. Um, and so we'll have more on that where uh, Faith's actually going to do her first interview. She's going to interview me about the process. We're going to be talking with... Uh, I, think, I think she has to get a passport to do that. <laughs> or some beef jerky. <laughs> some beef jerky. So we'll be bringing that to you soon. We're going to talk with the team we were down there with and uh, also be reaching out to some immigration experts and some background just on the general numbers and the asylum-seeking process. What are the laws? What is it from a policy standpoint? Uh, and also maybe talk to some other people in the Valley to get their first-hand experience. So and, I, and, and I was in London and Oxford having a good time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So so we couldn't have we couldn't have podcasts. So you didn't you, you didn't were you hit by the bad weather there? Uh, I, I was there for a little bit of the bad weather. Didn't affect my trip at all. I had a lovely time in London. The weather was beautiful. Went up to Oxford. The the first uh, wave of the storms hit, but not too bad. And uh, I, I was went to a conference in London and had a talk at Oxford and not doing nearly the kind of good work you're doing at the border, but I had a very nice time. Very good. Very good. Well, um, it was a... And while we were gone... And while we were gone, yeah, some things happened. Some things happened. Uh, Some things happened today. We've had a couple of primaries since last. It looks like the Democratic uh, situation's uh, a bit different than it was two weeks ago. I think so. by observation. I think so. So we have that results from Iowa now, which I finally. think they were coming in just a little bit. I think maybe this will be the dagger that finally kills the Iowa caucuses. <laughs> what can't they just do which primaries would be fabulous. like the rest? Uh, yeah, yeah. Why? And Buttigieg, I think, took the most delegates by one, like twenty-six to twenty-five. Yes. I think uh, with Bernie Sanders and coming Bernie, in Bernie, second. I mean, in essence, it was Iowa was a tie, and in essence, New Hampshire was a tie. And who has had uh, negative consequences as a role, as a result of those ties? Well, right. I would I would say Elizabeth Warren has basically uh, the the big question was who would who would take the progressive lane in this primary and 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 it was between Sanders and Warren and it looks like Sanders has it. Uh, you know who knows people can come back as we'll we'll talk about our next uh, <laughs> yeah. dead man walking, but. Uh, it, it does look like the Warren campaign is in bad shape. And as well, the Biden campaign. The, I mean, I think Joe Biden is a dead man walking. And uh, I'm surprised it was so quick. But the fact that he came in fourth in Iowa and fifth in New Hampshire, below 10%, no delegates. I mean, that's for the former vice president of the United States. That, that's not a good song. No, that puts him in Andrew Yang territory. And who is running for the first time? Right. Um, and had the best slogan of any candidate, Matt, make America think harder. <laughs> 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 
Yeah, so it seems like it's being shook up. Um, so, you know, uh, we'll see Nevada, right? I mean, Sanders is polling pretty well in Nevada, but the Culinary Workers of America, the largest union in Nevada, heavily Latino, Latina union, has, has not endorsed a candidate, but basically said that uh, they don't like Bernie's Medicare for All because their union has gotten them a really nice health care deal. And they don't want to lose that, so I'd be I'll be interested to see if Bernie can can uh, sustain his momentum in Nevada. It'll also be really interesting to see if Buttigieg and Klobuchar can do anything, or Warren for that matter, in a more diverse state. And then we're on to South Carolina, which has to be Joe Biden's. Uh, it's got to be his firewall, right? I mean, if he cannot win the South Carolina primary where African-Americans form a majority of the Democratic primary voters, then I, I, I think that uh, his candidacy is over. And even if he does win? I think if he wins in South Carolina, I mean, he goes on, right? But if he doesn't win, and we also, we've also had uh, Mayor Bloomberg get in. Yeah, so that's... And we have Mayor Pete and Mayor Mike. Yeah. And uh, Mayor Bloomberg, through... Uh, a lot of reasons, but some people would say through lots of uh, uh, excessive ad spending. Uh, $300 million so far is what he's spent on his campaign, and we're not even at Super Tuesday. And so he, by national polls now, is in second, also in the yes. odds markets, right behind Bernie Sanders in terms of national polling. And for a little bit, uh, he was kind of treated with lightweight gloves from the other contenders and from people just kind of uh, investigating his past, but all of this has kind of changed in the last couple of days, um, where some of his conversations resemble more of, uh, how was it put when it was for Trump, uh, locker room talk? Locker room uh, talk, yeah. Uh, about some comments uh, about a variety of groups of people. So it's going to be interesting to see. Well, how specifically women and racial minorities. Mm -hmm. And he has the stop and frisk from his time as mayor of New York. Now, I, I mean... As opposed to Donald Trump, Michael Bloomberg actually ran the largest city in America for three terms, and by many accounts, one can argue about them, did a pretty good job. He also, as opposed to Trump, is a real billionaire who actually built his own business. I mean, Michael Bloomberg is a substantial character and, and a serious person, I and, and uh, whether he is in the zeitgeist of the Democratic Party right now, I think is an open question. But I, I don't dismiss him at all. I think he's a really serious person and, and, and would be a very credible president and is a very credible presidential candidate. And the fact that he's willing to spend a billion dollars of his own money, which would be a small fraction of his actual wealth. Two percent. Two percent of his wealth. He's worth 50 billion dollars. Uh, and he's also said he will, regardless of whether he wins the nomination or not, he will continue to support the Democratic Party right. with this with this spending. Spend his money to defeat President Trump. And he's also come up with some of the best barbs against Trump so far. Um, what, what's interesting is that there's another billionaire running in the Democratic nomination, Staber, who hasn't attracted that um, attention in part because he's he's a member of the 1% both in terms of his income and in terms of his votes. Oh, man, burn. 
But yeah, it doesn't seem to have caught on and got any real traction in national polls or in the conversation. No, well, but again, you know, the same you could say for Patrick Duvall. You can say for so many of these other, and some of them are, you know, like Steve Bullock of Montana, really impressive resume, uh, done good things. Governor of Montana, Montana, a red state Democrat, winning in a red state. Right. Must yeah. be that last name. That's going to be my takeaway. Uh, uh, yeah. you know, there is that. Like that Bullock name. There is the that. Bullock. That's it. That and also deciding to run his campaign out of Montana, um, which exactly was good for the local economy, but not so much for his for his for his campaign. Maybe not getting the the the, the top the absolute top flight political operatives to come out to to Montana. Yeah, it's not usually their first place of residence. I don't think for work. All right. Well, I think that captures us. Anything else on the? No, I think events? I think Anybody it's. Wants to touch I, on? I think it's time uh, to, to hey, segue. Well, well, before segue, I should note that the early voting has started in Texas. That's true. Early voted start. Early voting started today, Tuesday, February the eighteenth. Yep. And for the first time in many years, if ever, Texas may play a say in who's going to be nominated for the Democratic nomination. That is, our votes could actually play a major role. I, I, I don't know. I think in 2016, the fact that Hillary carried the Texas That's primary right. actually helped her helped quite a bit against, against Bernie. Okay. But, but yeah. yeah. I mean, I mean Super Tuesday is, I mean, things are up in the air, and Super Tuesday will be very important. Um, any thoughts as to whether by the end of Super Tuesday or by the end of March there'll be a nominee, or will the Democrats... Managed to combine the usual form to keep on fighting until the uh, until the uh, convention, and then a- a- after that. Um, well, my hypothesis will be that they'll split between the moderate and the left wing. Could still be represented in the two current front runners, and that could go through March. Bernie Sanders' vision of the world and Mike Bloomberg's are different enough where they might kind of keep duking it out. I mean, maybe. Uh, Bloomberg concedes for the better of the Democratic Party if it's clear that Bernie has a serious lead at that point. But I, I don't suspect. I, I suspect the vote will still be split among the liberal, the further liberal wing, and the moderate wing, and that will carry on a little bit longer. So every political pundit has dreamed of a brokered convention. The last time a, a, an American nominating convention went beyond the first ballot was anybody know? 1920? 1952. 52 with 1952, the Democratic Convention nominated Adelaide Stevenson, I think on the second or third ballot. Uh, We have, ever since 1952, we have had first ballot nominees. I think we're going to have a first ballot nominee this time. I, I take your point that after Super Tuesday, we might still have a contest because the Democratic rules are that there's no winner-take-all primaries. The Republican side, as we remember in 2016, as you got further in the process, there were winner-take-all primaries. The Democrats don't have winner-take-all primaries. You get 15% of the vote or more, you get delegates. So it might be harder to get to the magic 50% of the delegates number. Uh, It might take longer. But look, if Bernie Sanders wins the Texas primary and wins the California primary, I think hard time denying him the nomination as you go ahead. But we'll see if he wins the Texas and California primaries. Mm-hmm. How about you? Prediction? No. 
Well, put it this way: lots of lots of possible possibilities. Um, to me, the real key is percentage of people voting. What's the voter turnout going to be? Right. Are we going to get more people than we did in um, tw- in tw- in twenty sixteen? Because yeah. um, if I remember correctly, the voting in Iowa, number of people, or sorry, caucusing in Iowa, <laughs> was uh, down. Was was down. But in New Hampshire, it was up a little bit. It was up a little bit, bit, but it's not. it's New Hampshire's a funny primary, right? Because it's a nonpartisan primary. Right. You can take a you can go in and take the Republican or the Democratic ballot. Mm-hmm. And since there was no Republican race, speak of, you might have had people who in 2016 you had the Republican and a Democratic race, mm-hmm. and so they were more evenly split. Uh, Bernie Sanders' theory of the case is he he wins by mobilizing new voters into the system. At least on the early evidence, it's questionable. We'll Well, find out. We We will find out, and it'll be, we're taking a two-week break between now and the next recording. March 3rd is when we'll be back, so we'll have some more things to talk about then. Well, March 3rd is is Super Tuesday, so. Maybe we should record later in the evening. Later in the evening. Or on Wednesday or something. So well, we'll see. We'll see. We'll, we'll see. Or we, maybe we can just uh, make all kinds of predictions on Tuesday. That then and then you and I can do a quick hot takes. Yeah, we could. On yeah. Wednesday. That'd be a great idea. Yeah. Okay. So, let's turn our attention to our guest. Uh, and some of, uh, we've talked with uh, Professor Cooper Smith before about uh, technologies and his uh, own specialty. If I mischaracterize it, you could uh, okay. definitely correct me, but. Uh, it, it is in general from the CV, so um, I hold it against you if it's completely All right. But uh, as a historian, cool. one of his primary interests is technology. <laughs> um, and I've also been doing some work recently on the impact of technology for governance, mm-hmm. how different technological tools, in particular AI, has uh, different types of impact on how we govern people, what types of tools we use, what does that mean for outcomes like effectiveness, efficiency, Equity. We also are now with AI and machine learning, worried about privacy and accountability and fairness and a lot of things that a technological tool is kind of disrupting society. So I was interested as kind of setting the conversation from a historian's perspective, what, what different things does technology do or has it done over time to impact social aspects? Is it in general a democratizing force like... Uh, we were having a little bit of a conversation earlier. Does it increase wealth? Does it destabilize society? Are there some specific examples we could use as as guidance to help us navigate this terrain? But I'm, I'm mostly interested in kind of a big picture view of what do we know about how as technology disrupts society and what biased ways does it do that? Okay. Um, <coughs> well, one of the founders of the field, Mel Kranzberg, had this uh, pithy phrase, technology is neither good nor bad, nor is it neutral, which is either uh, absolute nonsense or it, or you're thinking, uh, well, yeah, it's right, because one of the reasons historians make really bad politicians is instead of giving answers in absolutes and in black and whites, our initial response is to say, it's complicated. <laughs> 
But national affairs experts might fit in that general category. Yeah, too. but we, we also yeah. tend to come down on one side. <laughs> they come down on they come down on one side or the other, and they've got data sets and they've got formulas and you know. Dorothy's Greg of those things. I'm innumerate. <laughs> I, I, I do cases. Yeah, so he's um, old school. But the, there are a couple of trends in the history of technology over the last few decades. The big one is that we moved from economics of scarcity to economics of abundance. Uh, so that for Has a, anyone told the economists? Um, they couldn't <laughs> quantify it that well, so it doesn't exist. Scarcity, I think, is one of their cherished secret words. It is a good thing, and you can... Uh, and there can and there can no there can never be enough beef beef turkey to go around <laughs> or passports. Sorry, okay. those can be expanded. Um, but no, no, one of the, the bigger tra- is that uh, we've 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 moved like say economics of uh, abundance. So one of the challenges is how do you get people to consume more? Now, how many T-shirts do you really need to live? But another is the democratizing of a lot of tech technology. So, um, give you, which also leads to de-skilling. So, in the sense of um, de-skilling, de-skilling mm. that in the sense. But the okay, give you an example. Um, your car probably comes with an automatic transmission, which means that. You don't need to have the skill set to develop the skills oh, to, to drive, to, to, to switch, and yeah. get the GPS get the is probably cut. another classic one. Um, mental Ma- maps, yeah. mental maps, physical maps. Oh, who needs to who needs to remember where to go? I, I'll just I'll just follow follow this. Um, or the fact that um, I grew up taking f- photographs with a film with a film camera. I would develop my black and white photos. It was. Um, it took a certain amount of skill and a bit of pride and that I could do what a lot of people couldn't. Mm-hmm. And now it's point and shoot for videos. So mm-hmm. on the one hand, um, you know, I don't, you know, um, I don't need those skills. But I never really made my living as a photographer. Mm-hmm. You know, if I was, you know, where's the business of, of uh, photography? It's mostly gone. On the other hand, you know. I, I can take thousands of pictures and I can put them on Facebook and I can do that. What that, and in some ways, that's really neat. That's the democratization of creating memories of doing that. Um, it also means, in a more negative way, before, if you wanted to um, fake a photograph or fake a video, you really needed the resources of a, of a, of a state. Mm. And now, uh, you want to generate a deep fake? You want to show a picture of, um, um, oh gosh, Barack Obama and Nancy Pelosi with the with the head honcho of um, Iran and Iraq plotting anti-American activity? We can make that for you too. Um, it helps so. if you have a state behind you. Too. It helps if you have a state <laughs> behind you. But but you know one of the neat aspects is of uh, democracy. We've got all of these web. Um, all these websites that you can learn about this stuff, and you can you can um, communicate in back channels. Um, so you've got, you know, and so yeah, technology good, technology bad, same 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 technology. 
and what we've often, you know, we've seen with the internet, we're seeing with, I feel what we're seeing with AI now, a lot of enthusiasm. Wow, look at all the neat stuff we can do with this. And then finding out that, oh, bad guys can do bad stuff too. Uh, and I think they can do it better in some ways. Well, and, and so on that, um, you know, so recently, as I think I've told you, I've been reading Shoshana Zuboff's Surveillance Capitalism. Mm-hmm. So just so you know, I'm working my way there. But as Americans, we often think about surveillance issues with uh, other countries and the way they surveil their people, right? Mm-hmm. So what's in the news today or yesterday was some released records of all the information that Chinese officials at the local level collect on citizens to feed into a rating, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so this is this is troubling for some reasons that we should talk about. The, uh, the the thing that is kind of missed in the American narrative, one, is we're surveilled a lot as well. So mm-hmm. it's not like we're free from this. Uh, in a, It's not the same level as it is in China, but it's not like uh, we're still not free from those things. But the real driver in the U.S. is the capitalism mm-hmm. actors that are, that are uh, in this domain. So... Shoshana Zuboff has this idea of surveillance capitalism. Mm-hmm. And it's the idea of moving from industrial capitalism to surveillance capitalism. And the basic profit-making model is to take away more and more behavioral surplus from the consumer. And the way they do this is collect all of your... Behavioral cap- surplus. Uh, yeah, That's a it, little Marxist. Could you, <laughs> could you explain what that means? Yeah, so it's the additional benefit that you get from interacting with a product is the basic takeaway. So I'll, so I'll give you an example, the example from Google that I was getting to. So let's say that you uh, search for a term on Google. Google can then use that search term to improve their search results to you. That's something that you kind of inherently agree to with the search engine that's a direct consequence of you interacting with that search engine. You get some other benefits from using that. It's, it's free. You get to use that website to jump to another website to jump to another website. So then what Google has been able to do is create a user profile for you that then they track your behavior online across WhatsApp and across Instagram and across other platforms. And while you're typing in your search term, they also look at where your mouse is rolled over, for how long, for where it shows up on the screen. So why is that a surplus? So it's something that isn't intended inherently necessarily for the uh, producer to take advantage of. So it's just it's following your normal activities and monetizing them because it's selling that information to advertisers. And the reason you're getting able to use Google for free is that Google is providing you with that service, you're providing it with data about yourself that it then sells to other people. Right. If you're if you're not paying for it, you're not the customer, you're the product. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it's not just Google, it's any group that has cookies on you and you have no say in that whatsoever, what they do with that whatsoever. And it, yes, and it's it started with Google was sort of the first mover in this mm-hmm. in this domain, then uh, Facebook. Now it's spread to lots of different types of companies, and now internet service providers like Verizon, for example, collect the same types of data and then package your behavior and sell it to advertisers. 
So then the, there's a couple of points about this. One is this idea of implied consent. And Greg, you and I actually were talking about this yesterday evening about no one reads the terms and agreements. Right. right? Uh, but they have kind of said, okay, well, since you click yes, then you are automatically agreeing to all these terms, even if you don't understand them, even if it would take weeks to read all of them that you have to interact with. Because you check that box, then we have all these legal rights over you. Right. And right. by the way, if you say no, you don't get on. Exactly. You don't get on, and often what they've what they've found out, what the regulators have found out, is even when you opt out of these things, you still can't really opt out. They're still gathering your data. They're still selling it across different platforms. So in this way, surveillance and, and, and AI and machine learning is being used not from a, a central government actor, but from the private sector to also kind of manipulate your behavior in some ways. So you were talking about AI. To manipulate yeah. your behavior or just to monetize knowledge of your behavior? So the, the piece in which it gets manipulative is that the data is um, sold to partners that you're not aware of often, and then those partners uh, target advertise you on Facebook. Right. So that's what makes it a little bit different. And they know enough about you to know how to target specifically to you, which is different than what advertisers have ever been able to do in the, in the past. Yeah. So it was a classic case a few years ago of a father complaining to Target that why are you sending my girl, my, 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 my daughter uh, pregnancy pro ads about pregnancy products, and it turns out that she was indeed pregnant. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and she had probably Googled something. And she had Googled something, and the, oh, and uh, targets uh, said, okay, based on our data pools, you know, she's looking for this, she means that, she's pregnant, let's send her ads. Um, so you talked about democratizing, de-skilling, what uh, other types of things can we take away from uh, just general trends from technology you know, change? Um, okay, the, it's harder for mere mortals to fix the technology that's part of their daily lives. Um, you, know, um, you see this, as, again, automobiles is a quintessential example. You, know, you, could, you could play around with a, a, a carburetor. Uh, used to be, I used to be able to change my oil. Now I, I still can, but my elbow and my arms are not flexible enough to reach underneath there. Um, so, the, by the way, the, the automobiles are much more reliable than they used to be. Um, so you've got, you know, it doesn't matter that much that I can't fix it. Um, but in that sense, you're, you're seeing a little bit of a move away from, oh, I can own this, I can understand this technology, I can fix it. And part having to do with, com with complexity, you know, how do you fix a circuit board, how do you figure out uh, what's wrong in this, you know, in this, in this subcomponent. Part of it dealing with, with dropping costs. Uh, mm -hmm. Machines that are made not to be repaired because it's cheaper to just buy a new one than it is, than it is to, to, uh, to so, fix So that. technology drives specialization. Right. Um, you and used to be able to fix your own car. Now you can. Right. Or, yeah, and by the way, um, you know, you, that also means that you cannot, uh, the people who can fix the car, um, and there's a right to repair movement out there saying that companies should sell you, um, you know, 
the manuals to picture products mm -hmm. to understand it. Uh, uh, that with a number of technologies, you actually don't own the technology per se. You're just renting it. Um, but no, it, it will right to re repair, especially um, especially farmers or other people whose livelihood depends on their machines working at that specific time. Can't wait the three days to get it fixed. Yeah. Um, so what are some of the trends? So we, we've hit on some of them, de-skilling yeah. as one and uh, repairs as another. What are some of the general impacts we see to labor outcomes? Is this raising everyone's income overall? Is there is it widening inequality? Is it replacing entire sectors? You know, that's the fear you hear about with AI. You know, there's not going to be any truck drivers in 2035. How do you see kind of how at least some of the recent changes impact uh, okay. labor, skilled labor, we, and otherwise? Okay, there have been you know technology's been throwing people out of jobs for literally centuries. How many blacksmiths do you see working in town these days? <laughs> you know, you know, historically, um, 80, 90% of a population was, was, was rural trying to raise enough food. Excuse <coughs> me. <coughs> trying to raise enough food, you know, for another 10 to 15% able to live in cities and to and to think that you know, now in the U.S., three percent of our population are farmers, and um, so we've had this for a long. You know, people have been losing jobs due to technology and social organization for a long time, and the economists will say correctly that overall they've found new jobs, they've found better jobs, and the answer. But the historians say. Yes, they have found new new jobs, but there's often a gap of time between losing your old job and finding your new job, and you may have to move. Um, you know, 19, 1990, Michigan loses a couple hundred thousand truck or automobile workers when um, when De when Detroit implodes. A lot of them move down to Texas. Mm -hmm. You know, um, one of the one of the reasons the Industrial Revolution in the 19th century was so nonviolent, and there was violence, but in you know in Britain, is that you had the escape valve of emigration, the millions of people who couldn't find a job, fleeing to the United States, fleeing to South America. One of the um, um, what's going to happen to industrializing countries now where where is there going to be an escape valve for those for, the, for those people um, but uh, I mean right now the, right now. the, the enormous population movements seem to be driven not by technological change but by political and social disruption and chaos between between countries one of the right. major changes in last decade or two has been the huge shift in China of hundreds of millions of people moving from rural right. to urban urban areas. Right. Uh, I mean, it's the, that's probably the largest sustained anti-poverty uh, shift in the last in millennia, just in terms of number of people in a short time. Um, and the number of cities in China that are bigger than New York City, that, that are bigger than our and our biggest city is, I mean, you would think, oh, three or four. I don't know how many, but 
But, you know, in, in Wuhan province, where the coronavirus began, the major city, I forget its name, has like seven or ten million people. I mean, it's enormous. There's quite a number of cities that have over 20 million Yeah. People. Yeah. And the numbers of over, just over one million, just incredible. Um, and, and, and our thriving metropolis of Bryan College Station, we have about 150,000, maybe 200. Oh, and... Bryan College Station. Yeah, I think in the county, three hundred thousand, maybe. Yeah, uh, and that's that's a major draw. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, but you know, one of the um, you know, uh, when you talk about people living in poverty, one of the one of the challenges is um, definitions of poverty are changing as the society becomes more uh, affluent. Back in um, one of the debates in federal policy in the 1960s was, um, you know, did being poor mean that you could own a telephone or rent a, rent a, rent a telephone? And you know, what's the minimum amount of technology that you need to survive today? And you can argue it's access to internet, it's a cell phone. By the way, the um, there's still, U.S. is better than a lot of other countries, but there's still major ge geographic um, inequities in spreads of, te of technology. The number of Americans that do not have access to, to broadband is about over 10% of the U.S. population, mostly in rural areas. Um, so if you want to talk about a left-behind part of the population, today one of the definitions of uh, technologically inferior is not having broadband. So does technological change drive inequality? Yes and no. I think it drives... That's an historian answer. Here we go. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, I'm sorry. If, if it were an economist... It's complex. If it were an economist, it would be on the one hand, on the other, on the other hand. hand. Yeah, Harry Truman. But um, uh, on the one hand... No. Oh, oh my gosh, how many economists? I'm great. I'm going to be disowned, I'm going to be disowned by my family. Yeah. Um... Yeah, you have greater abundance than ever possible. It's, um, but we're more conscious of inequity also, thanks to, you know, uh, thanks to communication tech, tech, tech technologies, and in some ways the gap is larger physically. If you look at the, um, you know, if you look at the first class cabins on the Titanic, um, or first class shipping there. And compare them with middle class America today. You say, you know, we live, we live, we live, we live better. Um, but you know, then you get um, Vladimir Putin's uh, airplane with the gold, with the gold-plated uh, toilets. Maybe that's the link between Trump and Putin. The gold-plated toilets. The gold-plated toilets. <laughs> Entirely um, possible. That, there's a lot that could there. explain. That could there's explain. A lot there. <laughs> um. um Go oh, uh, some of the pictures of Putin's plane. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm not gonna say that. Just continue on. So I don't have to say. All right. I look, okay. All right. All right. Okay. But if you really want impressive toilets, Japanese heated toilets. Oh, I've experienced this in my last trip to Tokyo. And okay. They are phenomenal. They are phenomenal. Makes me wonder why we don't have them everywhere. Well, part of the reason is that in Japan, uh, energy is very expensive. So in your typical Japanese apartment. Most of the places are not heated. 
So having that heated toilet seat is, makes a big deal. Um, and I speak as someone who lived in Tokyo for a year and had a wonderful time and came to appreciate heated, heated toilets and, and space heaters. Um, or uh, spot, spot heaters. But um, no, you do have... Again, part of the magic of capitalism, I, I, I guess that's more proof I'm not an economist. Do economists say magic of capitalism? Um, but invisible hand. Invisible hand is creating difference, creating, um, creating. You know, how do I get you? Uh, how do I get you to buy more, more, more T-shirts? And one creating of the way, demand. Creating demand, and it's not just more T-shirts, but oh, here's. Um, Here's a gold LeMay T-shirt to go with your gold toilet for when you're seeing President no, Trump. Or nobody needed Chicken McNuggets. Says you. But now, <laughs> all sorts of people want Chicken McNuggets. And That's by true. the way, that is reshaping American agriculture because McDonald's is such a huge component of that economy. Here comes to my mind is Beanie Babies and Pokemon cards. Those are mine. You're going back to your youth. I'm going back to my youth, yeah. Everybody wanted to pay high dollar uh, for Beanie Babies, Pokemon cards, oh, and um, Power Rangers action figures. Yes. Okay. Now, those would be uh, those would be irrational exuberance. <laughs> um, yeah, and, 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 and fads. One Beanie Baby. Is <laughs> irrational exuberance. <laughs> but, but 40 irrational exuberance. No. Um, but a lot of people retired on those Beanie Babies. So many. Everywhere, everywhere. Almost as many people as are in our audience tonight. Yeah. <laughs> also retired. Yeah, yeah. From Beanie Babies. From the thousands that have joined us. Right. Virtually. Virtually. All right, so we got on the, on, hand, on the one hand. We keep interrupting you, so. Okay, that's okay. No, got to get not. back to inequality. In, yep. in, in inequality. On the, on the other, so if you want to look at absolutes, the number of people living in poverty, the number of um, the metrics, the Stephen the Stephen Pinker arguments. You've never had it so so good, right. and we are. I, you know, just just look at how people are dying, um, what age, and that's a very nice. Uh, looking at how people die is a very good indicator of a society. And if you've got people dying of of cancer in their seventies and eighties and COPD and diabetes. That's, you know, those are tragedies, but it's much better than, again, historically losing 30% of your, of your children the first year, right. year or two. Um, black death coming through and wiping out large numbers of your population. Yeah. Or we're, we're, we're all up in arms about the coronavirus, right? How many deaths? Um, so far? 2,000, 3,000? Right, but it's no, the percentage of people that we think are affected. Right. That's the scary part in the trend. No, I don't um, want to. I don't want to minimize it, but we're not talking about the the Spanish flu of nineteen eighteen. Not yet, um, but you know, we haven't had Super Tuesday yet. <laughs> um, uh, but by the way, if if you really want to be scared, uh, it's That's the good. it's the grow. It's not the coronavirus. It's the rise of antibiotic resistant bacteria. Uh, yeah. That's a, long, a greater, longer-term disease. disease. That, that's the subject for another podcast. Mm -hmm. okay. I still want to. I still want to hear because I have this 
sneaking suspicion that technology drives inequality. Mm-hmm. The technological change, uh, while improving the lives, right. broad numbers of people, tends to concentrate the economic benefits of, of that change in the hands of the, the few, the, the people, the companies that have been able to capture and monetize that change. Yeah. Yep. I think that's right. <laughs> yeah. Well, look at you know, look at who the new billionaires are. Um, they're not oil magnets. It's they like, aren't oil they, magnets. They're people like Michael Bloomberg. Um, who manage information. Who manage inf- information. The Bloomberg ter- terminals. Bloomberg um, terminal. Right. Jeff Be- Jeff uh, Bezos. Mm-hmm. Um, it turns uh, your your computer into the the, the shop of everything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Mark Zuckerberg. Mark Zuckerberg. Uh, Still don't understand why, but yes, Mark Zuckerberg. (laughs) Behavioral Um, surplus, Greg. That's all you need to remember. Behavioral surplus. I got to keep figuring out what that is. (laughs) You have to buy the book. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But but so they. It is funny that Marxists want you to buy their book. (laughs) Why don't they give me the book? Abby Hoffman, steal this book. Steal this book. That's right. It's before your time. Um. But I think he made money from that. Yeah, too. he undoubtedly made money. He made money from that. Too. So, so yeah, no. So the, you know, on the one hand, I, you know, the, um, the profit making is unduly centralized. And if you look at a lot of the, the stock market today, a lot of the gains are concentrated in just a few stocks. Uh, but is this similar to the railroad barons? I mean, and, and I, I, U.S. Steel Corporation. U.S. Steel, steel. right. And how I mean, much we're, we're basically across the street from the Carnegie Library in historic mm-hmm. downtown Bryan. Right. Where did Carnegie make his money? Mm-hmm. Steel and, industry. Steel and, um, and crushing up. the latest up technology the, of the time. Right. And, what, and, he, and he scaled up more. And he learned, uh, and it's not just the technology, it's getting the monopoly, trying to get the monopoly. Right. So a lot of this is not much technology, but how can we organize this? In a, you know, what is the political economy allowed? And that, but that's Zuckerberg, right? And that's Google, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. The, the first movers, or maybe not the first movers, the but first, the movers. Really the first movers. Right. But the, but the, but the, but the ones who can scale up and, 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 and capture enough of the market that it becomes inevitable that everybody else is going to use that particular technology or that particular portal. And then you become, a, your, your company name becomes a verb. Yeah, Google, which it. is the ultimate right. sound of, in, in the same way, in the or same Xerox. way, in the yeah, same way you say I Xerox something, we now say I Google something. Yeah. Um, and you know, and for a lot of the startup companies of the '90s and 2000s, one of their goals was not to have a successful startup, but to become um, and create your own firm, but become successful enough that you'll be bought out right. by. Google or Microsoft or buy one of the bio or buy one of the biotech firms. Right. This is kind of the second wave, though, right? The first yeah. wave was trying to capture the market in uh, in large portions. Well, not to cre- not too much capture, create, create yeah, and capture. Right, yeah. Well, well, to come up with the technological advance, right? right? I mean, you, you you had to come up with the killer app or with the with the with the uh, the, the the drug, the drug. with the drug, right. and you had to come up. You know, one of the keys. To um, uh, Amazon's success is that Bezos was able to convince people to keep lending him money and keep investing. Now, a- Amazon, 20. 20. No, uh, several years. Facebook didn't make any money. 
right? Yeah. It's a lot Amazon of, didn't make any money? Amazon, it was a billion dollars before its first money appeared. So a lot of these um, people are just, not just, I've got a good idea, I've got a killer app. It's I'm able to convince enough uh, people to invest in me or to keep financing me until... Until I scale up to the point where I where I get the the, the advantages of, of if not monopoly at least market control, control. right or enough market share that right. you are a that you are a player. Um, One thing that the economists have taught us is monopolies can take rents and they can take more for themselves. And sure. That's why these industries are able in large part to take such large amounts home. Which to your point, even if it's uh, even if the overall boat to use that terminology is lifting. Inequality can still be right, right. And all and boats rise, but some boats are rowboats, and some of them are yachts. <laughs> and some are super, super right. yachts. And some of them. And the, maybe one of the questions is not, you know, you know why is there a world of yachts and uh, and row row? And, uh, why is there a world of yachts and row rowboats? But are there enough rowboats, and are they adequately fitted? Mm-hmm. You know, if you've got. Um, one of the sadder aspects of the United States are these um, free dental caravans that go around the U.S. Occasionally, okay, you know, let's have dentists offering free care for these. You know, that's a sign of, you know, the road. You know, the rowboats need to be better filled. Right. You know that if, um, you know that, you know, um, you know FDR, Let's go back to FDR's. You know, freedom from fear, freedom from war. Um, you know. If you had a society where you did have, okay, you know, people in better health and not having to worry so much about whether where our next meal or rent is going to come from, maybe they wouldn't care so much about the billionaires. They just want the Kardashians more. It's not how unequal in some senses. It's what, what do we do as a society for the most vulnerable and right. unlucky and, amongst yeah. us. And can you use politics to smooth out? That. Some of those inequalities, in you know, in the interests of social stability and, and social peace, you know, maybe not from altruism, but you yeah, know, the rich, the rich, the rich don't yeah. want the poor interrupting their dinners. Well, and from like a national competitive standpoint, if your right. if your yeah. uh, citizenry isn't as healthy and as educated as the next ones, when those are the the variables that matter for society, just from a pure self-interested society standpoint, you would want to keep the national power. Most, yeah. Well, this yeah. was the argument for what, like, uh, cafeteria in in schools, right? Was yeah. making sure we had enough uh, resources to uh, enough buy nutrients. That's what I'm looking for right. to be able to nutrients. serve in the war. Yeah. Right. Well, well if you need, if you want to, you want to have a, a male population you can draft into the army. They've got to be healthy. And they need to have their teeth. And they right. Need to have. Yep. This is where the Boy Scouts come from. This is where, uh, you know, military well, needs. The Boy Scouts might be going too. Oh, well, that's a different. That's a different story. Bankruptcy. That's a different story. That one's a sad. Yeah. That. Yeah. It's not in there. It's great to have you, Jonathan. Thanks again. Pleasure. Have a having you as a regular guest. It's always interesting to hear your thoughts on things. Yeah. Fun to talk about technology that gets my plays plays into Professor Bullock's yeah. current technological. Even work in some international affairs topics, of course. Yeah. And no, it all it all and comes back to international free. affairs. And what? No and math. And equation free. No, no math. math. <laughs> no math. I was <laughs> told there would be no math on the podcast, uh, that, and that's why there's no Andrew Yang as a presidential yeah, right. candidate. No that's math. Right. <laughs> yeah. The Yang gang turned out to be a pretty small gang. 
So thanks again to Downtown Uncorked and Historic Downtown Bryan for hosting us yet again and providing a wonderful atmosphere for us. Thanks to those of you who are here in the audience with us this evening. We'll be back with you on March 3rd with lots more of interesting topics and a surprise guest. We're going to surprise you in two weeks with who our guest might be. That's right. Keep things interesting around here. Does that mean that you don't know? Uh, it's a surprise. It's a surprise. It's a surprise whether I know or not. But it will be someone very interesting. We can assure you of that. That sounds good. Uh, thanks so much, Jonathan. My pleasure.